Hello and welcome to Always Take Notes. In this episode, Cassia and I spoke to Anthony Beaver, the celebrated military historian, best known as the author of Stalingrad, but also a host of other books on the Second World War. As you'll hear from the interview, which we did in his um, little West London home, which is very beautiful, you'll hear that we don't really interview him. It's more a question of him interviewing himself. But nevertheless, what he says is all gold. He talked about his methodology, uh, what he's working on now, and also how he came to write Stalingrad. Yeah, uh, definitely one of Anthony uh, holding court, but I found it fascinating. As did I. For the, for the reasons mentioned, and really great to speak to someone at very much at the top of their game. Anthony, could you tell us a little bit to start off with about, about your background and how, how you, you got into writing, and particularly you know, moving from being an army officer to, uh, to what you do now? Well, careers are very unpredictable things. They can turn out in strange ways. Um, I have a very rare academic achievement, and that is that I failed my A-levels at Winchester. I failed English and history because I was in revolt. I hated the place. And um, I was uh, basically, I'm afraid, wasting um, a very good education. I did make up for it later, but it was still a waste at the time. Uh, and my father, who has uh, sort of double first in mods and greats from Oxford, you can imagine how furious he was, and I don't blame him. Um, but anyway, the point was, all I was interested in was going into the army. And it was only after five years, I went to Sandhurst and was a regular, but it was only after five years when... Uh, I had volunteered for the parachute squadron of the Royal Armoured Corps, but instead I was sent to the Junior Tradesman's Regiment at Rill in North Wales. And it was so ghastly and so boring. And then, with the innocence and arrogance of youth, um, I thought, uh, because my mother's side of the family had all been writers, um, I thought, why not try writing? So I started writing a novel, which, thank God, was never published. Um, Artemis, my wife, has never been allowed to read it. Um, and I'm not sure even I would uh, go back to it or anything like that. But it wasn't published, thank God. It did actually um, win something called the Young Writers' Prize, but still never got published. I mean, I think it was a ridiculous prize anyway. Um, but the point was that I had realised at that stage that the only way to learn to write was to be published because in those days there weren't any young writers courses you know UEA and so forth or none of those existed at that stage um so with a certain shall we say cynical calculation I wrote what I thought I could do which was sort of political thrillers and fortunately I was published by Jonathan Kate well first of all I was published by John Murray because they'd been the family publishers in fact I was the sixth generation of the family published by John Murray which was rather sort of fun and in a way and all the rest of it um, but then I was published by Jonathan Cape, and I had, there was a, um, a young woman editor there to whom I owe virtually almost everything because she put me through the ringer. I mean, I would come out feeling totally exhausted and, uh, <laughs> um, and almost humiliated because I realised that I didn't have a clue in what I thought was my writing and so forth. But my God, she taught me um, a lot. The, I didn't survive financially, obviously, on those sort of novels. I worked for a bit in advertising and marketing in Paris and things like that uh, while I was sort of writing. And um, then publishers started to say, well, look, you've got military experience. Uh, why don't you start writing military history? And that was how it all started. So the first book was The Spanish Civil War, which was a sort of prototype version, which then many years later, my Spanish publisher persuaded me to redo uh, with all the new material which had become available mm. with the Russian archives opening, but also um, archives in Spain. And uh, then, um, you know, it from one thing led to another. None of them really um, 
really sort of uh, took off. They didn't do badly. I mean, they got onto the bestseller list like Crete and so forth, but uh, uh, it still it wasn't very much. But then, of course, then came Stalingrad finally, but that was a, uh, a curious story in itself. But anyway, that was, as I say, uh, careers are very strange. <laughs> Well, we're going to talk a little bit more about um, Stalingrad later, but I'm really curious to hear that your move from novels to non-fiction was sort of prompted by an appetite from the publishers. Were you happy to make this change? Oh, yes. I'd always been fascinated by military history. Uh, I'd studied under John Keegan at Sandhurst, and um, in fact, I had a brilliant uh, history teacher uh, at school, uh, at prep school, and um, he he really sort of, if you like, inspired a love for the subject. Uh, so I, I, I wasn't a guinea at all, um, but I mean, it was something which hadn't sort of occurred to me at that particular at that particular point. So um, yes, I thought, well, anyway, let's give it a, give it a try. And I was always fascinated by the Spanish Civil War, and that was one of the reasons why. I mean, there were some extraordinary characters in London in those days. I mean, these were some of the old Spanish anarchists who'd sort of fled from Spain at that particular time. And uh, um, the fact that it was, uh, certainly in the Spanish eyes, sort of almost the either the overture or even the first round of the Second World War, depending on your political point of view. Mm. Um, and so it was, from that point of view, a sort of a fascinating one. Because I was also, you've got to remember, I mean, of my generation, I was brought up at a time when people's lives were completely defined on whether they'd had a good war or not. Mm. And my father had, had had a good war in Special Operations Executive and so forth. Um, and um, But, you know, you were, you were very, very conscious of it, and it had defined everybody's lives. And I think that's one of the reasons why um, I was so fascinated by it. And Stalingrad is often thought to be the book that reinvented or, or reinvigorated the genre of military history. What do you feel that you, you did differently? or Were you, were you deliberately trying to, to shake things up? Well, I'd started to move in a particular direction. Um, and this had come about largely thanks to John Keegan's face of battle. I mean, John actually was the first, very first one to sort of turn things upside down and no longer just the top down view of uh, military history, but very much more so bottom up and what the experience was at the front. And then interestingly, in the 1980s, there was a tremendous fashion for oral history. And I never was never convinced by oral history. I mean, it might be quite useful for other historians to sort of read these interviews or collections of interviews or diaries or letters or whatever it might be, but they always lacked a proper context. And um, what one has to remember is I was incredibly lucky on timing. You know, there are lots of people who come out with very, very good books, but it's a question of whether they actually hit the button at the right moment. And I was phenomenally lucky. I thought actually it was going to be a disaster because um, I had written a book called Inside the British Army, which I'd been asked to do by Chatter and Windus. And to begin with, I'd sort of really been rather depressed by it, but it was, we needed the money. We'd only just got married and all the rest of it. <laughs> and, um, but actually, I started to really, but I found it fascinating because one was seeing the social change going on at that particular time, which was really affecting the British Army. I mean, in a way, it was slightly like the canary in the mind, uh, in the mind during the time of Thatcherism. And suddenly, this new, new ethoses were coming in. The collective uh, was starting to go, the collective loyalties. And it was very significant the way that the traditions of the officer class uh, started to crumble at exactly the same time as trades unions. Um, so it was something right across, and that intrigued me so much that actually I wanted to take this on and do a, another book about uh, social change during that particular period of the 80s and 90s. 
Um, but my um, literary agent, uh, who is an old friend, and we've been together for, I mean, almost like an old married couple, we've been together for about 35 years now, and um, Andrew um, rang me up before, and he said, I said I got some rather bad news. Um, although they were fascinated by your project, uh, they've been thinking about it a bit more, um, and they've got an alternative suggestion. So my heart sank, and we went in. And Elio Gordon, who has been my editor for so long, but at that stage, she'd only just sort of edited the Creep book, but for paperback. And um, Elio then sort of said, well, actually, um, my, my idea is um, Stalingrad. And my face fell because I knew perfectly well that, A, I wasn't certain w about whether the Russian archives would be um, sufficiently mm. open at that particular stage. Um, and B, you know, children were very, very small. It would mean months and months away from home. And, uh, you know, it'd be a hell of a thing on, uh, for Artemis to cope on her own entirely. So I sort of started to make dubious noises or whatever, and I got a hefty kick under the table from um, Andrew, basically saying, this is a brilliant idea, you know, start um, sounding a bit more positive. <laughs> so I came home and talked to Artemis about it, and she said, well, you'd be a bloody idiot not to. Um, <laughs> and Andrew, thank God, uh, did this brilliant deal, whereby he managed to get separate advances from a German publisher, American publisher, which was American Penguin, and from Penguin UK. So I had, because it was four years work, basically, and, you know, you were A, the question of surviving uh, financially during that time, but also very expensive research. Mm. Um, and then, again, I mean, talk about luck in timing. Uh, Pikoya, who was the Minister of the Archives, and who'd been appointed by Yeltsin, forced the military to open their archives, um, basically just as we were sort of starting in, mm. in Russia. So although this was now 1995, interestingly, the 50th anniversary of the end of the Cold War. And in Britain, of course, there was a huge publishing bonanza, but they all failed to sell. So you can mm. imagine how depressed I was in Moscow. At the end of the Second World War. End of the Second World yeah. War, yeah. Um, and this publishing bonanza was a total failure. Mm. And I thought, God, I've really picked my moment. Here I am, sort of the biggest project of my life. And, um, you know, the, the markets collapsed. And that's why everybody was fascinated, because nobody expected the book to take off. When uh, Penguin discussed the print run, Helen Fraser, who's the managing director, said, well, actually, having already read it, obviously, she said, I think this one might go to 10,000 copies. And the uh, marketing department people just rolled their eyes in disbelief. <laughs> because in those days, a hit book of military history, um, absolute maximum would do 6,000 copies. Mm. Um, it was a very narrow, defined market. Um, then, of course, when, to everybody's astonishment, above all mine, um, it sort of broke out of genre, and you had women buying it and reading it as well. Um, you know, it's impossible when there's no uh, market research in publishing, so you've got no idea about exact percentages. But, I mean, I can only react from the way that people have talked to me. Um, and so, of course, you had all of these journalists wanting to know, understand the phenomenon. I also think in many cases they wanted to interview me because they wanted to know how, what's the formula for writing a bestseller in case you have to get out of journalism. Um, so, I mean, which I can... And it was, I got lots of uh, publishers saying, you know, there's nothing more irritating. They said, I mean, every single um, agent is trying to sell their the book as um, the, the new Stalingrad or the next Stalingrad. An agent sort of uh, complaining, saying that um, publishers say, well, what we want is another Stalingrad. But again, I'm afraid this slightly shows the sort of me too mentality of uh, publishing that um, they always, as soon as the sort of something happens, then everybody tries to leap in and do something similar. But it was partly this thing of trying to um, integrate history from above with history from below. 
which I had been working towards slightly with the Crete book, but I realized that in the case of Stalingrad, that um, if you didn't actually show the consequences of the decisions of, say, Stalin and Hitler uh, on all of the ordinary soldiers and civilians caught up in these horrors, um, you'd never really get it across, especially to a, you know, a younger generation for mm. whom the idea of totalitarian warfare was impossible to believe. We're living in a health and safety environment, a, uh, uh, a totally sort of non-military, non-military world, post-military world. And um, I think that it was sort of really was sort of the only way to convey the reality of the experience at the time, which was what I was trying to do. Well, but, but sorry, one, I'm sorry, just quickly to add one thing, in fact, and that why, why, in a paradoxical way, those early novels had actually helped in a big way because mm-hmm. it was sort of rather the way that I, I wanted to uh, see it, if you like, myself. I mean, in very much more in a sort of visual uh, capacity. Um, which pushes one to the point of um, obviously not writing a novel. It was never a question of inventing anything. But by assembling the material, you could recreate it more faithfully, both sort of physically, visually, um, and then one also one hoped to a certain degree emotionally, but without, as I say, inventing anything at all. Well, it did turn out to be this incredible um, smash hit. Can you talk to us a little bit more about the experience of writing something that you know, to to your surprise and to your publisher's surprise, you know, really um, takes off. Well, as I can say, as you might imagine, it was bewilderment. I mean, the real takeoff came. I mean, it did get okay. Got went to number one when it came out first of all in hardback, um, and then actually it was quite funny because it was um, uh, it was sort of shortlisted for the W. H. Smith Prize, um, but W. H. Smith wasn't selling it, um, and. Uh, I remember, uh, it was Hilary um, Sperling, who'd also, whose Mat- Matisse was out at the same time. She had exactly the same thing, that, you know, W. H. Smith was not selling her book, and yet where we were shortlisted mm. the W. H. Smith Prize. And the chairman of W. H. Smith was deeply embarrassed and very angry about the whole thing. So when it came to the um, trade paperback, they, which was a very clever move, actually, they hadn't done it before, mm. of going from hardback to trade paperback and leaving mass market further down the line. Um... The um, W.H. Smith made up for it by <laughs> stocking, stuffing their shops uh, with the book. And then came the great thing of um, it won sort of purely by, again, by coincidence that they were all announced in one week. Um, it won the Samuel Johnson Prize, the Wilson Prize for History and the Horseman Prize. Mm. Um, and so that sort of generated its own, um, its own sort of um, phenomenon, I suppose. Were there other factors that, that drove it? I mean, you've already said that there'd been this moment when other um, history books that the publishers had expected to do very well mm-hmm. hadn't taken off. Were there other, were there, were there other factors um, uh, culturally yes. that drove your, your success? Well, uh, I'm not saying drove my success specifically, but what we had underestimated was the way that society had changed and society's expectations mm-hmm. and attitude towards history had changed. So history in the past had always been, as I was saying, a top-down version in a way, uh, but it was always, on the whole, the collective version of events. Mm-hmm. Um, we had, in, during that extraordinary revolution, which was rather what I'd wanted to write about instead of Stalingrad before, uh, where you had the geopolitical change at the end of the Cold War, you had Big Bang, you had the invention mm-hmm. of the internet. Uh, you had a whole raft of things all coming together. But above all, you had the emphasis. I mean, people go on about Thatcherism and so forth. What actually she was doing, if anything, was just accelerating a process of the shift from the collective to the individual. 
And what people were actually longing for or looking for in a way uh, was the emphasis on the individual in history rather than the collective. And I think this was what sort of grabbed people, it seems to have grabbed people's imagination. Mm-hmm. So as I say, this was the question really was, it was timing which made such a difference. Did you find this uh, was the similar process going on in, in different countries? Obviously this book was translated into to many different languages yes. and did very well abroad. Were there similar factors elsewhere and, and did it get similar receptions in other countries to, to the one it received here? It varied very much from country to country. I mean some countries where you expected it to do incredibly well, uh, it was very very slow. I mean Germany was incredibly slow. Uh, it did phenomenally well in France. It did um, Scandinavia. I mean, the Swedes sold a quarter of a million copies, which um, for a sort of population of eight and a half million. Mm. But there, funnily enough, I've been helped because in Sweden there'd been no interest in history until uh, Peter England published Poltava, um, which, I mean, had a phenomenal effect in Sweden. And suddenly history was the thing. So, again, lucky timing. I mean, um, Peter, who's since become a friend, um, you know, had, as I said, sort of, you know, opened opened the, the market at that particular moment. Spain, uh, again, astonishing. Um, it was intriguing, it was sort of paradox that quite often countries which had not actually taken part in the Second World War, where sometimes the sales were greatest, uh, as I say, sort of Sweden and Spain and places like that. You mentioned the uh, the fact that the Soviet archives were opened. What was the experience of, of working there and how did you deal with the language issues and things like that? Um, how long so you have we... a translator, a long-time translator that you've Absolutely. worked Absolutely. Well, what happened was, it was quite funny, um, um, after I started, as soon as I started really working on um, Stalingrad and I suspect friends at Oxford and so forth, um, Norman Stone teased me, well, I'm trying to say, but I mean, you can easily learn uh, Russian in six months. He said, I've got the perfect grammar for you and all the rest of it. Um, I was um, rather dismayed by that. I did actually speak to um, one or two friends in, at Oxford, one of whom, of course, was of Russian extraction, and she said, well, Anthony, I wouldn't worry too much. Those of us who name Norman's um, Russian, um, I don't think that it's that perfect. Um, so that made me feel a lot better. Uh, but I realised that there was just no way that... I'd already worked in the Russian archives before, you see, on the um, Paris After Liberation book. When they very f- opened for the very first time, I was there in the beginning of 1992, um, when it was, as that wonderful French historian Stéphane Courtois uh, said to me, uh, c'est le vrai Wild West ici. Um, <laughs> and it was. I mean, you know, you had, you had um, American uh, researchers slapping down a $100 bill thinking they could walk off with a file. I mean, where, was... where are they physically in Moscow? Yes, yes. These um, uh, well, the the most important ones for Stalingrad actually were at Polotsk, which is south of Moscow, about two hours south of Moscow, uh, in the Ministry of Defence archives there. But the whole point was that uh, I realised that unless by then that time in Moscow in 1992, that there is just so much material in those archives. Unless you can speed read, even university Russian wouldn't be good enough. Mm. Um, also, because you need to decipher the squiggles in Cyrillic in the margin and so forth like that. Um, and so I was trying to find the right person. And then these friends at Oxford sort of said, listen, we can easily find you a young Russian historian. Because in those days, this was after the collapse of the Soviet Union, you know, they were desperate for work. But I didn't want to have a historian because, you know, they would have, might have their own uh, agenda. I'm not suggesting they were trying to sort of distort things or lie, but I mean, they might have their own agenda and their own interest. And eventually there was a friend um, married to a Russian. She said, hey, well, look, he's got a first cousin um, called Luba. Um, and um, she's probably no good at all because uh, her doctorate is in plant biology. I said, perfect. <laughs> and Luba, I found, we first of all, before we went into the archives, we went down to Volgograd and we were interviewing all the old survivors and the women who were there. Interestingly, the women were 
the far the best witnesses. Um, but that's another story. We might come back to that later. Um, while the men had read all of the official versions and they'd filtered their own experiences through the official versions. I mean, there, there were still nuggets which were quite useful, but it wasn't good. But the whole point was that Luba proved absolutely brilliant. I mean, she had that nose right from the start of what was sort of the key element and the key moment. So when we actually went into the archives, and there's quite a funny story there, but I have to be rather careful about that because, um, shall we say, things are fairly um, difficult and even slightly dangerous. Um, but I mean, um, I would sit by Luba and, you know, she would speed read through. Um, and I could read enough Russian and say, well, listen, hang on a second, what about that? I mean, looking over her shoulder, and she said, no, 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 no interest. And of course, she was always right. Um, but then she would say, right, this is important or whatever. And so I had to take my notes by hand because they wouldn't allow a computer in. They certainly wouldn't allow a camera. And um, what they were hoping, of course, was that we were going to pay them for uh, a dollar a, a photocopy, which back in those mm. days was quite a lot. Um, and because they heard that that was the only way that they could make any money. I mean, they were obviously desperate for money in those days. But the danger was, you know, do you offer money and then get accused of bribery or, mm. you know, or corruption or spying or whatever? I mean, it was so paranoid. They had not. I mean, here was the here was the Russian army who, as far as we were concerned, we were potential enemies, if not outright enemies from the sort of Cold War days. Um, and they'd been ordered by the government, you know, to open up their archives, and they didn't know how to handle it. Mm. And I mean, this is one of the fascinating things about Russia, is there is this extraordinary combination of paranoia, but also naivety. Mm. So the very first day, actually, where we first of all had to negotiate at the uh, Ministry of Defence with the colonel who is in charge uh, of the uh, overseeing the archives, which were also were overseen by GRU. There was one particular officer who we came across later. And um, his first question was, he said, um, what are you looking for? Um, uh, he said, uh, and I said, well, you know, I'm after looking at the starting ground. He said, yes, we have a simple rule in our archive. He said, you tell us the subject, we choose the files. And there was no point trying to sort of say, well, hang on a second, that's not quite how it works in other archives. Or so I said, well, listen, you know that um, I'm interested in uh, writing about Stalingrad. Um, and to give you an example of the sort of material, in the German archives in Freiburg, um, the most interesting reports are those by outsiders, by doctors and by priests attached to German armed divisions. Roar of laughter from the Russian officer, no priests in the Red Army. And I said, yes, now I know that. But um, the, perhaps the political department reports, the commissars, and that's actually where the gold was. Mm. So when we finally were allowed in five months later into Podolsk, um, the first morning, Luba and I had to sit on the other side of Colonel Shuvashin's desk. He was the uh, deputy director at that stage, became the director later. Um, while he bellowed into the telephone, he had rather a good sense of humour, I have to say, uh, because he, at one point he slammed down the telephone and he said, pointed to it, he said, Soviet 1960s model, it would be easier to shout to Moscow. <laughs> and um, <laughs> and um, anyway, but um, we had to be really careful, and we were. And then suddenly, towards the end of the morning, the door opened and this character appeared. And this is somebody called Colonel Grigor Yurovich Starkov. And he had GRU written all over him. He spoke perfect English. And his first question was, was I looking for negative material? <laughs> so I had to give him a deliberately boring um, treatise on the duty of objectivity of a historian, which cut no ice whatsoever with Colonel Starkov. <laughs> and then he simply said, well, you can leave your bags and papers here. He said, the canteen is out there down the road or whatever. So not much subtlety there. Then when we came back, we found that we were uh, allowed, without any supervision, sitting in a um, uh, lecture hall down the, down the corridor, 
um, that we were without any supervision on all the files because every single one of the files had pieces of paper sticking out of them and we were given a list of the files, uh, of the actual documents we were allowed to read. Everything else was forbidden. So as you might imagine, it was a question of sort of rather cheating in an exam. I mean, Luba had one finger in one of the permitted passages as we worked as fast as we could through the others. And I learned one of those lessons at the time. Um, well, I mean, I, I'd worked it out without too much difficulty. But the one thing you need was the wire-spined notebook so that you could rip out the pages mm. without it showing. And I used to sort of trouser my um, pages, you know, after every few minutes, uh, minutes um, just in case sort of we were checked on. And then, of course, we were. Suddenly, they realised, after a bit over a week, um, they suddenly realised we were spending too long on certain files. And what was fascinating was that these files, whereas for each month of the battle, um, a, the political department was actually sending back every single night a report of between usually anything from 14 to about 25 pages every single night on what Stalin needed to know. Mm. And these were fascinating because there was no propaganda bias. Mm. Stalin was desperate that to know what was going on. He didn't trust the generals. And so as a result, you had both the genuine heroism, but also all of the less heroic stuff of drunkenness of commanders, mm. soldiers crossing over to the enemy and all the rest of it. So I mean, from that point of view, you know, for the first time, you thought, my God, um, you know, you did not expect in a Soviet archive to have something which was untainted by propaganda in that way. Well, anyway, then suddenly Starkov reappeared and there was sort of, a, it was a very, very unfriendly meeting. Um, and basically I'm saying, you know, um, we've got to see all your notebooks. And um, but I knew that they didn't have any um, interpreters down there. Their only interpreters were actually in Moscow and they'd have to bring them down each day and all that sort of stuff. So I said, well, you've given us till the end of the week. Um, why don't I give you all my notebooks then and you can <coughs> go through them. And I've got very bad handwriting, so if you like, I mean, I can certainly help your interpreters if they can't read it and so forth. Anyway, they sort of calmed down on that particular thing. But then I realised, of course, that um, most of the material had been from the forbidden passages. Mm -hmm. So I, I always felt that um, I had to start sort of writing letters of praise to Comrade Stalin myself to bulk them <laughs> out because that was the passages that they yeah. had chosen for us. Uh, in the thing. Anyway, in the end, it was okay, but it was quite interesting. So I was staying with a Canadian political attaché who was later the ambassador there a few years later, uh, who was a huge help. And um, Chris said, these are uncertain times. When I finally got back on the sort of last day, he said, they know you're flying out tomorrow. Uh, there's always the pol pol possibility that when you get to che uh, when you get to um, the controls at Cherimetovo, uh, they can go through your luggage and remove every single piece of paper, and there's nothing you can do about it. So he took me into the Canadian Embassy and we photocopied every page of the notes, so that the, he could always get that one out to me if necessary later. Uh, but in the end, it was all right. But quite it was a relief to be able to walk towards the exit, knowing that um, we, I wasn't going to lose any of the. Um, and Berlin was also fairly hairy in a way because... Um, so they let you back? Yes, because at that stage we had to go and see them. And by this time, Shuvashin was the uh, director of the archive. And um, he was sort of in a wonderfully sort of thing. He said, um, now then we would like to see ourselves as the joint authors of your book. You can imagine the sort of smile I gave him at that idea. Um, and one of them, one of the other officers present said, um, yes, we would like to see uh, how you used our archives in your book on Stalingrad. Now, this was this was about 1998, 99. And um, the collapse of the ruble came in 98. Mm. And the 
um, publishers who were publishing Stalingrad, which was actually a sort of a, not a very impressive publisher in Smolensk, mm. um, hadn't managed to get it out by then. And so I said, oh, well, um, you know, the Russian edition hasn't come out yet. And they said, but what, don't you have a copy of the English or the German with you or French or one of our interpreters could go, go through it? And I said, no, but that's very silly of me. I didn't think of bringing a, a copy because, you know... I'm, I'm, and um, anyway, so we were alive, but this time they, 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 we had a minder the whole time called Allah. Luba whispered to me very naughtily at one point, she said, Anthony, you should give her a box of chocolates laced with laxative to get rid of that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you know, the idea... I have one right with me. <laughs> Uh, anyway, um, the, but Allah literally was sitting there the whole time, and then she obviously got bored after a bit. Um, because she was obviously working for again for sort of GRU or whatever, and it was quite funny because um, she what she used to do was she was to go out of the um, uh, room, um, sort of not quite slamming the door, but you know walking heavily down the corridor, um, and then she would creep back later and suddenly open the door to see whether we were looking guilty or not, and it's like playing grandmother's footsteps. <laughs> But fortunately, we then suddenly spotted, when, when she went through this, we suddenly spot, I suddenly saw she had a very bright pink shopping bag. And I suddenly saw her get from the window going out of the main gate. So this was our opportunity. And then she went shopping those days. But, I mean, we still had to be very, very careful indeed. Mm. Um, the, I mean, I, I was, I've been teased by various other historians that I was responsible for shutting up the archives and all the rest of it because of the Berlin book, which was the one which caused the huge fuss. Uh, but in fact, no, because we'd finished our research well before the restrictions started coming in. I first heard about it from Lennart Samuelsson, uh, a very good, great Swedish historian on the pre-war period, who um, got in touch saying, did I realise that the uh, FSB, the old KGB, were now checking on every file taken out by a, a foreign historian. And then Catherine Merridale, um, a wonderful um, historian who was working on her book on Ivan's War, um, about the Red Army in the Second World War, um, Catherine found she couldn't even get into Podolsk. Mm. Um, and, you know, the barriers had really come down. Not only that, they tried to scare her. And one, one of the archives, and sharing her on the uh, computer, they'd installed these computers. Um, they had no computers to show the catalogue, but they had computers basically to track what foreign historians were doing. Uh, and they were cross-referencing them to see with other archives to see sort of what their line of approach might be. Uh, so Catherine was a bit shaken by that, but she still managed to produce a, a fantastic book considering the restrictions by that particular stage. Um, but you see, my book then didn't come out till 2002. And um, there was an unfortunate thing in the way that uh, my publishers in January, before publication in May, uh, my publishers in January uh, persuaded me to do an interview with the bookseller. Um, and I thought, well, I think that's okay. Nobody seems to read the bookseller or whatever, you know, certainly not. Anyway, what I hadn't realised was, of course, then the te Telegraph leapt on it. And um, I was furious the way that sort of Charles Moore was expecting me suddenly to spill the beans on the whole book, mm -hmm. you know, six months before it mm. was available in the shops. Um, so as a result, they made up a huge amount of stuff of pure speculation. And that's when uh, Karazin, who was the Russian ambassador, accused me of lies, slander and blasphemy uh, against the Red Army mm. without knowing sort of what was actually in the book. I then wrote a counter, which I insisted that uh, um, Telegraph uh, published, uh, trying to correct some of the mistakes in the article. And then I suddenly got, I was hearing this from telling the telephone rang, and I picked up the phone, and there was this uh, voice, this deep Russian voice saying, 
Anthony, this is Grigory. We must have lunch together. A vodka lunch. <laughs> and I can imagine my feeling of sort of complete terror. I, I had a pint of full cream milk before going, as you might imagine. And there we were in what used to be Maisky's study um, with the Karasin. And we had one bottle of vodka on in front of our, um, the smaller, I can even so, um, for Friday lunch, it was still quite something. And... Um, Karazin was it was very interesting because I mean you know, he was he was a mixture of sort of both open and totally defensive at the mm. same time, and he was saying you've got to understand this is the Russian ambassador. It's a Russian ambassador now deputy to Lavrov, mm. um, and he said you've got to understand. He said um, the victory is sacred, and I suddenly realised what he was saying because this meant that this is the problem of course was the mass rapes, and um, the victory was sacred even to those say who'd been in the Gulag who were completely mm. anti-Stalinist. And so anything which undermined it, like the whole story of, of the mass rapes, was something which was totally taboo in Russia. Mm. And we had got all the material actually from, basically from Russian archives. Yeah. Um, I, I presume that they're not available in the archives anymore because um, um, certainly I can think of, shall we say, uh, one book I mean, on China, funnily enough, where at the request of the Chinese government, every single document was withdrawn afterwards. But anyway, uh, as I say, there it was in the, it came from their own archives and all the rest of it. And um, the, a number of, oh, yes, it was terribly funny. The German ambassador, um, uh, Hans Friedrich von Plötz, uh, said, oh, he said, I'm, uh, he said, I must give a launch party for your book with my friend Grigory Karazin, the Russian ambassador, to show how we've got over the whole thing. And saying, well, I said, ambassador, I, I think you should read the manuscript first before you um, sort of go any further. So I gave him a copy of the manuscript, and I felt at the same time I should, out of politeness, send one to Karazin. And about sort of a week later, I was woken up at about, <coughs> it was a Sunday morning, eight o'clock. Uh, you know, hello, this is um, Hans Peter von Plurt, he said. Um, uh, and because um, I'd immediately sort of picked out her and said, yes, who is it, or whatever. And, uh, and um, he said, yes, he said, I now understand what you are trying to say. He said, uh, not only um, do I not, cannot give a joint party with him, I couldn't even give a joint party on my own. He said, my next posting is Moscow. <laughs> <laughs> And I saw Karazin later, there was a conference at the Foreign Office on wartime documents between um, the Russia and um, the UK, between the Soviet Union and the UK, during the Second World War. And it was a very interesting conference with very good speakers. Um, and um, Karazin was there. And I could see he was avoiding me, having read the manuscript. So I, I, I felt I couldn't let... Anyway, he's far taller than I am. I mean, he basically sort of... He was looking over the top of my head. He wasn't sort of looking in my eye. Uh, and I said, I'm sorry that you've had so much to read or whatever. And he said, your book is very interesting, but you must understand I cannot possibly agree with it. Mm. And not surprisingly then, come the 9th of May, I was um, condemned as the chief uh, calumniator or slanderer of the Red Army. Um, and that's gone on for quite a long time. And it's even got to the stage, and actually, I better not say this anyway, but um, I am technically liable to five years in prison if I go back to Russia as a result of the law brought in by Sergei Shoigu, the Minister of Defence, and this came in a few years ago, that anybody who slanders the Red Army, uh, which he originally described when he was Minister for Emergency Events, uh, anybody who slanders the Red Army, um, which he compared to the equivalent of Holocaust denial, which I thought was an interesting concept, but um, um, rather strange, um, is liable to, to five years imprisonment. Now, I don't think that would ever happen, but at the same time, you know, it's not a risk one can take. 
but it's pretty tough for my Russian publishers who are Margaret Sazbuka Atlas. Mm. Um, they tried to publish, well, to do a proper translation of the Berlin book. Um, and then they were sort of advised that actually no, it was far too dangerous. Mm. And uh, I mean, they're the ones who were there. And I must say, I thought it was, I thought it was too brave even when I, I heard them considering doing it. Mm. Apart from the sort of um, the political ramifications mm-hmm. and, um, and and that, the, this book must have had an extraordinary impact on your life as a writer you you spoke a little bit earlier about um needing the the money when you you first got married Mm. and and how has um how did um the publication of of Stalagrad and and, and later your other books that have done very well how has that um impacted your 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 finances and and your advances and can you talk a little bit more about the the financial side of being a writer well I was always rather I, I was never terribly keen on um you know huge advances because um, as a writer, you've always got to be fairly careful about the moment when you, uh, if you like, your advance fails to earn back mm. uh, because, you know, then word gets out and all the rest of it. And so I, I was always sort of slightly nervous about it. And also, also, I was always nervous about the idea of sort of multi-book contracts and so forth. But apart from anything else, it felt terribly claustrophobic. Mm. I had to do sort of one book at a time. Um, but... No, of course. I mean, it made a, a huge difference. Um, you know, so um, we bought the house in the country and uh, various friends um, joked that it should be called Schloss Stalingrad. Um, <laughs> and, <laughs> but, I mean, in fact, actually, it was the, the three prizes together. Um, so we had what we, um, I, we built this barn, which is where I do all my writing, which I've got, you know, all the books all the way around, mm. or around it and, uh, and so forth. Um, which um, sort of basically was sort of the Samuel Johnson barn. Um, and, um, you know, yes, obviously it made a huge difference. Um, the, 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 what one has to then recalculate is the fact of the promotion of the book, because mm. especially with all the foreign publishers, um, I mean, obviously I didn't do all 32 or whatever it might be, uh, because, you know, certainly for the Far East and all the rest of it, I mean, simply... Not worth it, partly. Actually, you don't even know how they translated it, which is always mm. sort of slightly worrying. Um, a Chinese journalist uh, who was interviewing me at the Edinburgh Book Festival suddenly said, "You do realise your publishers uh, removed every single passage where Mao Zedong had been um, had been mentioned uh, because they were so terrified of um, the censorship and mm. so forth." Um, so you know, you've got no sort of real. Uh, control, but anyway, basically, I'd usually do about sort of fourteen, fourteen countries, mm. uh, twelve to fourteen countries each each time, and so that takes up a whole, more or less, a whole year. Yeah. Uh, and then there are obviously going to be odd ones later because some, for example, I mean, the polls always come out in January of the following year. Mm. Um, the Germans seem to be the slowest of the lot for some reason. Um, so, you, you, but anyway, the trouble is, it is fairly disruptive in a way. Yeah. So it does slightly limit your. Um, your sort of timings and so forth. But um, both Stalingrad and Berlin were four years each. Mm. Um, and as you might imagine, you know, it's a hell of an investment of your time and life mm. and all the rest of it. Um, so although publishers sort of rather nervously want to tie you down and for multi-book contracts or whatever it might be, um, one, I try to avoid it as far as possible. Um, question mm. on method. So I, I read an interview yeah, with William Dalrymple who said mm. that you told him a, a timeline technique that he has subsequently used for all of his books for sort of marshalling material and things yes. like that. Well, funny enough, funny enough, I did it again the other day. I mean, I occasionally am asked to do a, a sort of masterclass on the researching and writing and marshalling of um, the material, um, which I've done for 
and on a few occasions. First of all, I did it for the BBC, curiously. They asked, and I thought, you sure this is going to be of much interest? And I do think it's, it's of use, uh, and it certainly seemed to be of use for them. This was actually for their documentary filmmakers and uh, news and so forth. Um, obviously, they weren't going to use the same, exactly the same methods, but there are certain principles which I think are always terribly important, uh, which one can you know, talk about. But uh, um, with Willie, who's now a very old friend, um, we, you know, we always sort of discuss the whole question of the way, because the marshalling of the material is actually one of the most important things. Mm. And when one thinks about the old days with the card index system, I mean, mm. you know, you two are far too young to have known what it was like <laughs> in those days, but I promise you it's an absolute nightmare. Any of these books would have taken a year, two years longer mm. without the joy of the personal computer where you can actually uh, copy the material across and not have to retype every bloody time and snowpake mm. and uh, uh, cutting and pasting and all that sort of stuff. All of that is gone. And also, you're not at risk of losing material. So really, the basic idea, which is what I discussed with, uh, with Willie and, um, uh, and then sort of part of the uh, lecture later on, on uh, which I did, funny enough, the other day in, in Denmark at the University of Aarhus, they wanted it done there, um, is that <coughs> you really need to start off with your skeleton chapters. You do all your background reading first, and then you have your skeleton chapters. Um, and then when you get into the archives, so you'll obviously have a separate, sometimes just one file, sometimes it might have to be a, um, you know, a whole folder. Um, and then when you've got the material in there and then you get to the, the early marshalling period, you start copying all the material across to the likely chapters. It gives you an idea of where you're missing material or where you've got far too much. I remember on the Berlin book, um, I had about 150 pages just for one chapter, just in notes from Russian archives. So you've got to start doing a triage fairly early on. But then again, with the joy of the computer, you can have your reserve chapters. Um, and when you do your initial triage, you can put your stuff down to the reserve chapters and then later on check to see whether there's something important you miss, which you can bring back mm. in again. But the real thing is that when you actually get to the writing of each chapter, uh, some of them, if they're too long, you might need to split them. Some of them times you might even need to amalgamate them. But basically, uh, on the whole, you find that the skeleton system will usually work most of the way through. Um, but it means that you can actually feel reasonably in control of the material rather than that sort of terrible flailing around mm. where, you know, you've got so much, so much information that you're, you're, you're drowning slightly. And do you, um, obviously your, your wife is a writer too, do, yeah. you, do you have a, a kind of professional collaboration as well? Yes, well we did the Paris Alpha Liberation book together. Um, um, I mean in, in a way it was her book originally um, and I mean you know life, uh, shall we say life was a bit of a struggle early on, it had to be books before babies um, and then when it came to baby time or whatever um, the, she had started on the Paris book uh, because she'd done a, a wonderful book on Cairo and the war and this was a sort of similar one but also because of her uh, grandfather's diaries and then a whole lot of other people helping with material from that particular period uh, of 44 to you know 44 to 49 um, we suddenly realized that uh, of course there was the 50th anniversary looming in the distance and one couldn't really miss that uh, so I dropped everything having sort of finished another uh, thing so I did and, and with you know, first ch the children, uh, very, very young. That's why I did the Russian archives in Moscow in 92. 
um, because all of the French Communist Party material was all, all there in, in Moscow. Um, but then we did do that together, but I'm afraid the whole thing in the end had to be slightly divided on what might mean, I'm afraid, sort of rather sexist lines because she wasn't able to get out and to do many of much of the research. So she was doing much more of the chapters on social life and um, fashion and uh, all of that sort of side because what we were trying to do uh, was to bring together all of the different elements. Of course, this was, this was in those days, was regarded as absolute anathema in France, you know, the multicultural, multidisciplinary approach. And in fact, Simon Charmer's Citizens was never translated into French because of that sort of disapproval mm. of a multidisciplinary approach. Uh, but anyway, no, that was why um, we did work together. But far more importantly, as we both edit each other's uh, work straight away, um, as soon as it's uh, ready, um, and Artemis, uh, one has to go through a certain pain barrier, shall we say, uh, early in the relationship, um, <laughs> you know, so that you get that, to, you, you, you realise that in fact they are actually trying to help, not um, mm. criticise or anything like that. But I mean, Artemis will go through mine, and besides a paragraph, she'll put boring or don't understand or whatever it might mm. be. Um, and you know, therefore, you've got a problem um, mm. and you've got to do something about it. But um, sometimes he might say, well, I'm sorry, it may be a bit boring, and perhaps I can sort of think, but, it, you know, it's just essential information or whatever it may be. But, I mean, it makes a huge difference because, I mean, as you both know, I mean, you're, 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 the writing is about the loneliness, loneliest process in the world. And unless you can get a really good um, opinion on it, you've got no idea whether what you've written is good mm. or bad. I mean, that's always been the worst um, worst problem of, um, and one of the reasons why probably writers are so paranoid. Um, but being married to another writer of, is a huge, huge bonus in that way. Do you work with researchers? Yes. I mean, in um, with Luba, obviously. I mean, Luba, as I say, um, because I found she had really absolutely the right nose and uh, brilliant in her instinct and, and, and sort of the human detail. Um, so, I mean, you know, I didn't I don't have to sit next to Luba in archives anymore. I mean, we only, I only had to do it really with uh, uh, Stalingrad and Berlin. But I mean, ever since on any other uh, thing, whether it was the Spanish Civil War book, which we redid in two th for 2005 uh, in Spain, um, you know, Luba was able to, um, she, she would send me emails simply saying, listen, this is a sort of thing. What, what, what is there anything particularly you go for? But you can't give exact shopping lists to researchers because, I mean, as I'm sure you know, that I mean, um, you often don't know what you're looking for until mm. you find it. Um, and especially in sort of huge archives where things are not terribly well catalogued and uh, um, there may be one absolute gems inside which you would miss otherwise. Um, I only also wear languages, I mean, for example, on the Arnhem book, um, uh, my um, Polish um, translator was actually my publisher's um, interpreter when I was doing interviews in Warsaw and so forth. Uh, and she's been absolutely brilliant. She came over here, stayed, and that, when we worked through the Sikorsky Museum mm. and some of the other um, Polish archives here in London, as well as obviously she did the Polish archives in uh, Warsaw. And also then um, a great uh, Dutch friend. Um, we worked together in the Dutch archives for the Arnhem book. Um, and then she carried on on her own um, because there was just so much. There was a uh, Dutch minister in the government in exile who actually broadcast uh, to the Netherlands just before Arnhem um, saying liberation is coming, keep a diary. And I mean, you know, it's phenomenal. Mm. And again, funny enough, coming back to the same thing, all the best diaries are usually by women. 
um, the observance, yeah. Do you find there's there's been any um, negative consequences to big successes? Have you found there's sort of been um, a pressure on you to write similar books? Uh, you know, you were talking at the beginning about the sort of the Me Too phenomenon. Yes, I mean, of course, of course there is, um, from the point of view of publishers. Um, and to a certain degree, they're right. I mean, it's interesting the way that as soon as people... Um, I mean, there are some friends, uh, Vikram Seth, for example, I mean, Vikram has always tended to uh, go for completely different genres. Even. Mm. Uh, it's not just a question of different subjects, but I mean, you know, um, in his case, you know, uh, poetry, fiction, uh, non-fiction, and so forth. Um, and there's no doubt about it. I mean, that does say tend to confuse the trade as well as, um, as, well as the public. Uh, and inevitably, you do get sort of forced a little bit into a into a rut. Um, and um, certainly, you know, subjects in the Second World War are probably running out. I can still still think of sort of one or two which I still want to do, particularly one uh, at some stage in the in the future. No, in fact, two. Um, so you know, it's a question. You know, of just to a certain degree, keeping going. Mm. Um, but any ones which really are going to interest you. I mean, you get bombarded with suggestions by different publishers. Will you yeah. do this? Will you do that? Or how about this and all that? Uh, and the vast majority of questions are, the answer is no. It's not just a question of the publisher, though. What I also have to think about are all the foreign publishers, too. Mm. So it's got to be a reasonable international... Uh, I mean, something that's going to be purely English uh, is probably going to be of less interest to yeah. them. Fair enough. Um, so you're not, it's not entirely a free choice. You're completely mm. right about that. Um, but obviously, at the same time, I'm not going to do something which I would find boring or I wouldn't, just doesn't interest me at all. I mean, there have been various suggestions of uh, <coughs> subjects which um, I wouldn't touch with a barge bow. Mm. How have you found the um, uh, long process of, of managing your relationship with agents and, and publishers over the course of your career? Because you've been published by um, several different imprints. Well, it was, first of all, John Murray, and I went back to John Murray, or rather John Murray sort of called me back to do the Crete book, um, and, um, um, you know, loved it being, again, with sort of, you know, with, with John Murray, because it's partly because of sort of, you know, all the family collections, and uh, and then, of course, um, Artemis's stepbrother was the head of John Murray as well, and so forth, <laughs> um, I mean, you know, so it was quite, uh, I mean, it was almost like sort of a family, fam, sort of part of the family um in a, in a sense, but also Jonathan Cape all that time ago. Um, no, basically it's been Penguin, particularly for all of the um, uh, battle books. Uh, I've done a couple of others for Weidenfeld, um, and um, both. But those is because curiously, um, Penguin weren't interested in the Spanish Civil War, um, which was a very sort of strange thing. So that went to, that went to Weiden, Weidenfeld. And um, then I did that book on the whole of the Second World War, also um, for Weidenfeld, because we've got you know got lots of friends in publishing and um, and with different, I mean Tim Healy Hutchinson, who was the head of Hachette, was Artemis, one of Artemis's oldest friends from Oxford and so forth. Um, <coughs> And, you know, Rupert Langston used to live in this house. I'm off to have lunch with him. He's, uh, um, what's he, he's Hodder or whatever. So, I mean, you know, one's got lots of friends in different areas. Um, so, I no, that's never really been, I don't think, really been a, a, a problem. I mean, sometimes publishers might get sort of paranoid about sort of are they going to lose you or whatever. But, you know, I think that uh, publishers have to realise, you know, they can't own authors any more than, you know, authors can expect automatically to be published by them. There's got to be a, uh, a mutual decision on every single, on every single book. As far as agents are concerned, I've been absolutely blessed. Funny enough, 
um, I did do a novel which was never published, but funny enough, it was um, seized upon. I'd been staying in the, in the States and it was, uh, I was snapped up by the William Morris Agency. And this was in the very early days when sort of, you know, one was desperate for success. Um, and so I got terribly excited, you know, it was almost this thing about sort of welcome aboard the good ship success and all the rest of it. And then they couldn't sell it to a single publisher. And, and <laughs> but I had to sign a three year contract. Um, and they weren't interested in my next book, which was the Spanish Civil War. And so there I was absolutely trapped. Well, Andrew was already, a, uh, Nuremberg was already a friend. And I mean, this is going back to, what was this, 1982. Um, and so I begged him to um, take me on. And I mean, he wasn't earning any money from me at all in those days or whatever. So it was um, incredibly kind of him. Um, but actually, it's been the greatest fun. I mean, because we both have exactly the same attitudes towards publishing. Um, and, um, you know, basically there's no point, you don't want to ever have something oversold, you don't want to have uh, ludicrously excessive advances like mm. sort of somebody like Andrew Wiley once tries to obtain, uh, because you, it's actually going to work against you in the longer term, mm. and so, you know, one's got to work long term rather than short term uh, in that particular sense. Uh, and Andrew has a brilliant instinct uh, for these sort of things. I mean, I, he never told me about his selling of um, Stalingrad. Um, and it was only because there was a journalist from GQ magazine who was accompanying him around the Frankfurt Book Fair um, who simply couldn't believe how things were done. And um, uh, he described how uh, Hans Ebert Deda, who was the head of uh, Bertelsmann, um, you know, came. And Andrew told me, he said, I want half a page, no more, half a page on Stalingrad and how you're going to approach it and all the rest of it. And so there was this meeting which lasted for about, I think it was about three and a half minutes. And um, Andrew handed over the half page. Eva um, did, I read it through and he said, uh, right, Andrew, usual system. And Andrew said, yes, usual system. They both took out a uh, visiting card, wrote a figure on it and then exchanged figure, exactly the same figure, deal done. <laughs> what, like? Yes, like that. How extraordinary. And um, um, also somebody else who was with Andrew told me how uh, literally he would be walking down a corridor, you know, all of these long corridors and everyone was walking very, very fast. Somebody coming in that direction, Andrew said, I've got a book for you. He said, right, how much, uh, whatever it is. I mean, you know, just simply on trust. Because they knew perfectly well that Andrew would never sell them a book which was not going to work or mm. which he think, thought was sort of an off, just an off chance or whatever. Mm. Because it's a question of the long term. If, you're, mm. if you start losing trust or you... You, you, you basically are not, or betrayal trust, for even more so, you know, word gets around very, very quickly and it's just simply not worth doing. But I've also been incredibly lucky. I mean, the other area where, where is that, um, um, you know, to what degree um, you're going to inspire a lot of jealousy. Um, <clears throat> and I wouldn't blame people because, I mean, I've just been phenomenally lucky um, and especially on, as I said, on timing and things like that. But there was a wonderful moment at... Um, um, the Spanish ambassador, you won't believe this, the Spanish ambassador at one point had something called a Jabberwocky party where everybody was going to present the Jabberwocky in different languages and it even included uh, included a whole lot of people with Adam Samoyski in Polish, uh, Dominic Lieben in Russian, um, the papal nuncio did it in Latin. Artemis, who doesn't speak German, was asked to do it in German, funny enough, anyway, the Jabberwocky. But at the end of the evening, and we had a, it was a very, very good evening, um, two um, uh, historians 
approached me, um, in fact, in the form of uh, um, Adam and, uh, and Dominic, um, slightly unsteadily on their feet, and they said, we decided that we wanted to come over to thank you uh, because, on behalf of all historians, because thanks to you, the advances for history have gone up through the roof. <laughs> so I think that's probably a reason why I got a fairly easy ride from mm. other historians. But then the others uh, said, you know, then there's the whole area of academic this is exactly what, what the next question was how does your how does your relationship with the academy and with academic history how is that that work well it's actually been phenomenally good um i mean astonishingly good in my view um in the sense that uh, catherine merrydale said um she said well you know see anthony the thing is um i think i can say this um no she said well you know the point is you're because you're not a candidate for the British Academy, you're not seen as a direct threat. Mm. If you had been seen or whatever. Anyway, it certainly doesn't um, worry me in that particular... I mean, I've got lots of friends who are members of the British Academy and all the rest of it. Um, but as a result, academics um, have not been nasty at all. Um, certainly not in this country. Mm. And um, have actually been hugely helpful. Um, there was a wonderful moment... Yeah, do I to dare tell this? No, I better not tell that. It's quite funny. <laughs> I'm afraid this is always the trouble with sort of a podcast. Um, but you know, even academics who've, uh, shall we say, have got a reputation for ferocious reviewing, like say Richard Evans or whatever, um, have actually been incredibly kind. And um, in fact, it was quite a funny moment when Richard Richard suddenly announced. He said, "Oh, I'm reviewing your book on the Second World War for the New York Review of Books." And apparently, the look on my face was sort of like Munchie's the scream. <laughs> <laughs> And Artemis was there at the time, and um, Richard realised that perhaps um, um, I wasn't greeting this news with um, enthusiasm. <laughs> and he said, no, 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 I really liked it, or whatever. Actually, um, Michael Howard was uh, just inside. This was the 40th anniversary of the Wolfson Prize. Um, and Michael Howard, um, the professor, not the um, um, politician. Uh, and I told Michael, um, who's a sort of no friend, and uh, he laughed in a sort of rather dry way, saying, yes, those of us who know <laughs> Richard's reviews and <laughs> his idea of a nice one is not most people's idea of a nice one. <laughs> so I was really dreading it. And in the end, actually, it was, in, it was incredibly, um, incredibly thoughtful and perceptive one. But, I mean, you know, some people can be um, ferocious. I have had one very um, nasty one from somebody, and I think there was an element of uh, probably perhaps of jealousy there. But, I mean, considering considering how lucky I've been, um, I don't think it's anything to... Uh, and uh, and your relationship with other historians in the similar field, do you... Do you no, that's it, been wonderful. I mean, okay. in fact, um, you know, whether Anne Applebaum, very old friend, I mean, we were, she was researching... Uh, Gulag when I was researching Stalingrad and we used to meet for dinner in Moscow and sort of you know to compare notes that's actually where we both found exactly the same experience about the difference between men as observers and women as observers um, and interestingly I was actually after discussing this and because Anne was saying to me she said does this happen to you you know to, of, of the men she was interviewing basically sort of saying now sit down don't interrupt I'll tell you what happened I said no no I get just exactly the same sort of thing um, but what we both agreed was that women were far more reliable as observers. And I suddenly realised it was only on the way back that night in the uh, metro uh, to where I was staying with Luba and her mother in North Moscow um, that, um, <clears throat> of course, it was the men had been so humiliated in the sense that they had no control over their own fate. Mm. 
And now, of course, they're, they were in command of history because here were all these foreign historians coming to interview them and they tried to sort of, you know, impose their version of events. Oh, yes, I saw Zhukov, you know, he was there and so forth. I mean, you know, they, they had, again, this is a way of putting themselves into history mm. in a way which had never been the case at the time because they'd read all the official versions. The women, on the other hand, had kept their eyes open and their mouths shut at the time. And when you interviewed them, and I remember interviewing the, some of the women who'd suffered in Stalingrad and so forth with Luba, uh, where Luba had been sort of so brilliant about sort of coaxing them to talk. I mean, there you had just had, they just simply recorded the sadness, the tragedy of the whole thing. Um, and they were actually, and this is why the women are the best diarists of the Second World War, whether Ursula von Kardorf or the anonymous diary of a Berlin woman or Iris Arrigo in Italy and so forth. Mm. Um, and actually some of the Dutch um, diarists which we found for, the, um, for armament. And in, in the public imagination, you're mm. often associated with Max Hastings as the other figure operating in this field. Do you, do you have a relationship with Max? Do you know yes, each other? Yes, yes. Yeah. No, I mean, we're great friends. I mean, okay. you know, we, we see each other on a frequent basis. Okay. Uh, so actually a shelf full of his books right there. <laughs> no, 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 We are. Um, the only time you've ever sort of really been rivals was when we were both doing a book on the Second World War together at the same time. In fact, I started before Max. And Max said to me, he said, well, Anthony, he said, um, I'm sure yours would be a better book and you'll sell more copies, but I'm damn well going to beat you to the deadline. <laughs> Nobody has beaten Max to a deadline. Um, I mean, I remember Anne Applebaum telling me how when she was once working with Max at the Evening Standard, um, she said, you know, Max would sit in front of the computer and compose himself for a few moments like a concert pianist, and then he would start, and he wouldn't stop until he'd written 1,200 words exactly on the subject. Now, I can only gasp in envy and admiration at his capacity, and he can do something which I can't do, which is working flat out on the book all morning, and then suddenly, two o'clock, doing the article for, whether it's the Daily Mail, 1,800 words, or the uh, Guardian, or the Financial Times, or whatever, you know, and then running it off like that. I mean, that is a, a mental discipline which I simply don't, don't have. But no, I mean, you know, we're very, we're very, I can tell you, very old friends. And, um, you know, I hugely enjoy his company and I hope he enjoys mine. I think he does. Um, and as a result, we do uh, do a lot together. And uh, the final question from me on this <coughs> is, um, one thing I found doing my own book on the army and, and moving through this sort of world of people writing about this was it seemed that there were, you know, some people writing about military affairs seemed to be kind of negotiating at some level their the fact that they were soldiers or weren't soldiers or, you know, dealing with some kind of personal set of feelings they have about the army. Was that something, or, or the aspect of war itself? Was that, is that something you've been conscious of? What I was war? lucky about was not trying to write about the army just after leaving. Mm. I think that's always a slight problem because, I mean, one does have one's own, if you like, personal and collective hang-ups uh, from that particular stage. The reason when I did uh, Inside the British Army was that, um, again, I was trying to do a totally different book. Funny enough, I was trying to do a book on basically all the civil wars in um, Europe uh, between 1917 and 1921, um, trying to sort of bring them together. It was probably a vastly too ambitious book for me at that particular stage anyway. And um, so Chateau um, basically said, no, but we've got another idea. Um, we said they'd had somebody who was a very good writer uh, to do a book on the Foreign Office. And what they'd found was that because he didn't speak the right language, um, they ran rings around him. Mm -hmm. And they said, listen, you know, you speak the right language, um, but, and you will be seen not as an outsider uh, if you do it. So what about doing a, uh, an analysis, in fact, a sort of portrait of the whole of the British Army? Um, as I just was saying earlier, 
my heart was not in it to begin with, but then I became fascinated uh, by, as I say, the social changes and the way they were sort of affecting, affecting the army. But it did make all the difference that one was able to sort of talk to people and if, yeah, you, if you had the right jargon, important. if you had the right jargon, um, they would relax. But I did find one terribly important um, uh, trick, which was that um, people were very reluctant to talk too much about their uh, present job, but then you could find out what they'd been doing in their previous job and then, you, then they would be prepared to tell you everything. Uh, so that was quite... That was, that was quite 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 useful, um, and the other thing was that, of course, I said right from the start that I wasn't going to identify anybody. Mm. You know, I would refer to somebody by their rank or their position, their arm, right? position or whatever it might be, um, which meant that they were much easier and more mm. open. I mean, Molly Deneen, very old friend who did that film on the Welsh Guards in Northern Ireland. With Molly Which used to amazing, live here. Amazing she li- she lived well. Molly lived here before we were married, and then actually she came back again when she fell out with a boyfriend at that particular stage. This was long before she got married, and so she moved back in again. And so Molly was, as I say, a very old friend. She had a difficult time, um, and she said, "Listen, um, I have got a problem." Um, they were cutting the whole film. Because Molly's rule was, uh, I can, um, she always would offer to the people that they could then see the interview beforehand, and if they didn't like it, they could take it out, which meant that they were much more open and ready to Mm. talk more openly. And Molly told me how other uh, documentary directors at the BBC had said to her, "Um, Molly, how did you get permission? You know, you can really shaft them. And Molly was deeply shocked. She said, I'm not there to shaft them or whatever. You know, I just want to understand. And that's why she's such a good documentary uh, filmmaker. And funny enough, I she saw... She made this film about the, the Welsh Guards. In yes. Ireland, well, I saw Charles is... Guthrie soon afterwards. He's an old friend because my father and his father were in SOE together in the Second World War. <laughs> and Charles was actually horrified to hear that a documentary filmmaker had been given permission and all the rest. And I said, I promise you, Charles, you can t- trust her. I know her. I know her well enough. But Molly did have a problem because during the film, um, she showed it to everybody, which is her standard thing of what they'd said. Uh, But there was one um, platoon sergeant who was basically describing his officer in such a way that, you know, that guy would never have been able to hold up his head again ever. And Molly said, I need to get your reaction, I mean, on sort of how bad you think this is. And I said, it's very bad. I mean, that guy's... He would, he would almost have to resign on the basis of this film coming out if you were going to do that. And Molly, to her eternal credit, said, right, I'll take it out. Mm. You know. So, I mean, that, I mean, that is a form of... You can tell the difference, again, with historians. Lawrence Reitz, another example, somebody who's just fascinated by the truth mm. rather than trying to act, you know, grind their acts in a particular way mm. or, uh, or anything like that. And, I mean, that, those are the sort of historians um, or people sort of recording or writing history or filming history in a particular way um, who, I really, uh, who I really respect. I think we've just got one final question, which is, what are you um, working on now? And would you write about a more contemporary conflict? Um, Okay, working on now, well, I'm in Arnhem, um, uh, and I'm, you know, no decisions yet on the the next book. Um, I'm going to need a little bit of a break. Um, And... Uh, about more contemporary conflict? No, uh, is the answer to that. Um, many people have said, when, when are you going to do the Iraq war? I wouldn't touch it with the bowage pole, and I'll tell you why. <coughs> Interestingly, when I was um, chairing the, the Society of Authors, I think it was while I was still there, um, they were approached by the government about the 30-year rule, um, because the government was sort of re-examining the whole thing. Um, 
and uh, what what basically were your feelings? And uh, my feeling was that actually the 30 year rule works pretty well as it does because uh, it does mean that the documents are boxed up and they're sent back and at least they're preserved, okay, they may be weeded later or whatever. The danger now is that because um, journalists particularly are desiring or wanting to write history on the hoof, as it's basically still happening, um, ministers and uh, generals um, are trying to are weeding literally right from the start and so anything controversial is removed straight away we've seen this with emails government emails let alone Hillary Clinton's um, and I don't think that historians in the future are going to be able to write very effectively about it now there's a huge quantity of material which may be ready but I think we'll be missing out on a lot of stuff uh, because of this sort of self-censorship, which will start right before they even get into boxes or get... And they're having real difficulty. I, I went to a conference at Kew on mm. operational records for Iraq and said that, you know, for example, the, the Regimental War Diary, which is a standard form from yes, 1860 yes. to 2005 or something like that, then it's digitised. Mm. And suddenly it's piles of CDs and things coming in. That You know, it's a, it's a mess, basically. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. You're quite right. It's also mm. the digitalization yeah. because, you know, A, it's so much easier just to wipe the emails. You know, if in doubt, if in doubt, wipe. Um, and so I think it's going to be almost impossible for historians in the future. Um, they'll they'll have plenty of things to write about mm. if they want. But I mean, I think to do a to do a general history of say the Iraq War or whatever other conflicts uh, may appear will be very very hard indeed. Um, I mean, what I what I found fascinating doing that mm. period is mm. that you have you're coming at it from a journalistic background, so the gap is ten years or so. So there is an openness to talk, and it can it you know. It can be fascinating in that you know, everyone's still alive. Yes. So you can still, you know, mm. you hear this person was there and you can go and, and mm. you, you know, almost the, the, the problem is is the material is unlimited in some mm. ways. You know, where does one... Yeah, yeah. Where well, does I mean, we saw in the Vietnam War the way that CIA, the CIA just drowned, drowned in information overload. Yeah. Um, and one could also drown in information overload on the Iraq War. But the trouble is you cannot, you don't have a core narrative yeah. as you've had in the past where at least there is a sort of, if you like, there is a, the, you've got a timeline again. Well, Ch Chilcott, Chilcott to an extent does that. Chilcott to an extent does that. Um, I have to admit I have not read um, Herod Chilcott um, mm. or even any even part of it really. Um, but yes, I think that Chilcott did. But I mean, how many, what, does that mean we're going to have to have a Chilcott after every single mm. uh, conflict? We mm. probably are. I don't know. I mean, considering how controversial war has become. Um, which brings one on to the other problem. But because military history is such a um, controversial area, uh, it has attracted many from outside um, to... Uh, basically start writing about war when they don't fully understand mm. either military life uh, but also military ethos and many other things of why uh, the army does things in particular ways or anything like that and I think that there's always been the danger when outsiders have tried to impose a sort of ideological grid on a subject that they don't fully comprehend. Now I'm not saying that every single um, military historian um, has to have served in the army or anything like that. Uh, far from it. I can think of some very good ones. I mean like Catherine Meridale on Ivan's War and, uh, and so forth. Um, but you've got to have a certain understanding and empathy rather than being trying to impose um, a, a particular sort of uh, world view or uh, political view, in fact, on, a, on the subject. A sort of sensitivity to the language. 
and the sensitivity to the language and understanding also the mentality of why think people do things in a particular way. I mean, you know, Joanna Burke wrote that book, uh, An Intimate History of Killing, uh, believing that basically it's sort of, you know, men kill in war because somehow it gives them sexual excitement. Now, um, that may be true of a small, tiny minority, but it's certainly not true of the majority when you know that, uh, certainly in the Second World War, uh, that most soldiers um, were reluctant even to shoot their rifles. Um, mm. And, you know, all of the research which was done, whether it was um, Wigram in Italy, which Monty suppressed, uh, or, you know, Marshall later on, which was slightly more dubious, but, I mean, they all came to the same thing, was that uh, a small group would actually want to do the fighting, Mm. Um, a small group would try and run away, and the main group in between might follow one lot or follow the other lot. You found it, we found exactly the same thing in the, in the Russian archives um, of Soviet officers saying there should be a uh, weapons inspection after every engagement and anybody with a clean barrel should be executed straight away as a deserter. Mm. Um, so, you know, they, they all... Uh, I mean, that's human, that's human nature. So the idea that somehow that sort of, you know, um, soldiers fight because, you know, it gives them a sexual excitement or whatever, uh, I'm afraid really is imposing sort of, you know, theories from outside on a subject which was completely under, not understood. Well, I think we'd both like to thank you so much for your for your time in, in speaking to us and being so candid about um, your time as a writer and your books. And um, I hope uh, not too candid. <laughs> <laughs> not too candid. There are still lots of stories that are, that uh, you know we were hinted at but not told. Hello, it's us again with a swift update from our lives. Cassia, what have you been up to? Well, last night I was at a, a strange midweek wedding, which was a little bit inconvenient. Who, but get, who gets married on a Thursday? I, well, it. my friends, apparently. But apart, apart from that, I've been mostly um, finishing up the final um, chapters of my book, which is very exciting. And um, I will be doing a little bit of work over Christmas, but I think it will be done by the new year. Hooray! Hooray! Um, I have also been working on my book. I had a very productive meeting with my editor last week and have been fact-checking and editing and all of that good stuff. Uh, also working on a piece for the Paris Review. So, yep, yeah, all is go at uh, always take notes, Towers. <laughs> yeah, Towers slash covered. Yes, exactly. <laughs> this has been Always Take Notes, hosted as ever by me, Simon Acom. And me, Cassia Sinclair. Our producers are Olivia Krellin, Ed Kiernan and Liz Davies. Our music is by Jess Danheiser. Our social media is by Zara Hankier and graphic design by James Edgar. And we are present on all manner of social media platforms. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Always Take Notes. We're on Twitter at Take Notes Always. And our website is alwaystakenotes.com. And as ever, uh, please do leave us a review on iTunes, particularly if you enjoyed this episode, which I I have no doubt that you will have done. Um, But it it really helps. So thank you very much and have a wonderful new year, I think. I think we're there, aren't we? More or less. More or less. Happy New Year. Bye. Bye.